this morning, we are getting toward the end of the old school series, and um, I want to take you on a quick review, in case you haven't been here. We'll see how good you guys really are, how many of you can remember where we've been. All right, so here we go. Uh, week one, we did the first day of school. We talked about God offering each of us a new beginning and about God, um, us wanting to welcome the new kids on the campus since we're the, the seasoned veterans around here, and then uh, having a responsibility to to reach out and to welcome and to take care of those who are new kind of in the faith. We talked about then, we did recess, we talked about uh, God loving to watch us, his children, play and how important it is for our lives in order to have balance as we go. We talked about homework, week three, how important it is that we keep growing as a Christian. Week four, we did ditching, talking about how worshiping with others consistently honors God and produces positive fruit in our lives. Then we did bullies. Uh, God gives us victory over those who might try to harm us or others. Then we did lunch money last week. We talked about how important it is that we honor God with the money that he's entrusted to us. And today we're talking about graduation. Now we got your book coming next week, but we got graduation today. And I'm going to use as a metaphor or analogy, if you will, uh, baptism. We're having a baptism Sunday next weekend, okay? And, and these are special for a whole bunch of reasons. But the most important reason is it's a time when people take an important step to forge a covenant with God that is supposed to last for the rest of their lives. Uh, I wear a wedding ring. Uh, I have, this is about my seventh, to be honest with you. I've only had one wife, though. Um, but I have a problem hanging on to these things. Um, I, I, uh, I, they've fallen victim to all sorts of different things. I think I lost my first one. It was within the first year we were married. Uh, then this last one, I remember, was a victim of a beach bag. Uh, we went to the beach, and I was going to go out in the water, and I was afraid my fingers would shrink up, and I'd lose it out in the surf. So I put it in the beach bag, and it was never heard from again. And then I went without, because they're not cheap. If you're going to, you know, you can get, I guess. I, I'm probably one of those guys that needs to get a tattoo or something around my finger. Um, that would solve the problem. But I went ahead and got another one. But, but, but I want you to think of it in that term, okay, this morning, that... That baptism, for a, in a particular way of looking at it in Scripture, is the believer's kind of marriage ceremony with God. Okay, that there's something unique that takes place there. There's something unique when a, when a person says before God and others, I'm willing to step up and to say I'm with him. The Bible gives a ton of different analogies for what baptism is like, and baptism's like this, it's like that. And we're going to look at one in particular uh, today in Galatians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, Bible app, want to get it open, feel free to do so. Um, in 1993, when I graduated high school, uh, which is a long time ago for many of you, um, th we had three principals at our high school. It took three of them, I guess, to, to keep this thing under control. And they all looked very different. We had one who was from Oklahoma. He was a cowboy. His name is H.J. Green. I remember he wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. Now, this is inner city Long Beach. It was, it, nobody could have stood out worse than that guy uh, but he actually was very well liked by the students. Uh, I remember Karen Hilburn, who looked like Cruella DeVille. Um, she had a red hair with a stripe going down the side, tied back into a bun that was so tight, her whole skin, she, you know, she looked like she had Botox before, before she probably ever did, pulls her face way back. And then we had Maggie Webster, who handed me my diploma. And Maggie was, um, Mrs. Webster, I should say, she, she was one of those people that went around and, and was almost never a person that smiled. Like, my, my, my memories of her were that of a look of constant disapproval, okay? So whenever you would run into her, she kind of give you, she might say, hi, 
And the look on her face was disapproving. Like I'd already messed up by just saying hi to her or something like that. And on that day, when I walked across, she was the one that gave me my diploma, and I actually saw her grin. She was softer. She was happy almost, almost happy, seriously threatening to be happy. And so she was there handing out diplomas, and I remember thinking to myself, I bet this is actually a relief for her is what I thought. Looking back now, it's that, you know what, we got them across. And then she's thinking back on four years of dealing with all the knuckleheads that are going across the platform and thinking about all that. And then you have the parents, they're out there, right, at the graduation ceremony, and they're crying, most of them, happy tears. Happy tears. What are happy tears? Those are the tears that we get that are from joy. Something that happens and our body doesn't know what else to do. And so it just kind of, you know, squirts out things from our eyes and our mouth trembles. And you always have the people going across when their name's called. They've got a small village that's there to see them graduate. And they scream at the top of their lungs. I'd like to think there's something like that that happens in Encinitas when four or five times a year we go over there. And, you know, sometimes as few as five or six, sometimes as many as 25 go in and they do the same thing and we kind of take over moonlight beach and people are cheering and they're everybody's cheering and everybody's amening and everybody's taking the pictures and everybody's happy tears coming down the face why is everybody so happy what's the big deal is baptism really just like some say it's just one of those little times when you give a public proclamation of an outward reality or something like that, like you could with a T-shirt. You just wear a T-shirt. says, I'm a Christian. So it's the same thing, right? Uh, you could just say it with words. You could sky riding, get a tattoo, put it on your car. You can do all those sorts of things to do that. Or is it different? I'm going to suggest to you that somewhere between that and another reality over on this side, which is kind of the hyper-legalistic, you know, um, you need to do it uh, to be saved, and if you were to decide to get baptized and you were driving to the beach to get baptized, you were in a car wreck and you were killed, you would go to hell. Like that, that side. And then you have this side, the one that totally understates what baptism is really about, okay? Um, I would say this is a much more common way to look at it. Baptism is t-shirt, essentially. Now, we give out t-shirts, and we give them out because uh, we learned in the early days of NBC that people don't always dress appropriately for a baptism. And uh, sometimes when they come out, um, the, the same things don't come out uh, that, that went down into the water. <laughs> and some people didn't dress appropriately for the occasion. They dressed in all white, for instance, or something like that. And so when they came out, it was awkward. So we started giving the official NBC black t-shirt with the white logo. And if you see one of those on somebody, that means that typically um, you either baptized somebody or you were baptized here at NBC. If you see a black one with the bronze logo or kind of, kind of uh, gold colored, that's the 10 year anniversary shirt, all right? But that, that t-shirt and the first, you know what edition you got by how much water it soaks up. The first version was like a chamois. It sucked up everything and it, t it feels like burlap on your skin if you survive the rash you probably get from wearing it, you will, if it ever gets wet, you will carry every drop of water with you wherever you go. We paid, I think, like $250 a shirt. We had no money, so we, we paid nothing for those. 
The addition we've got now are actually rather nice. Thank you. So um, you put them on, and, and that signifies, hey, I'm here to, to be baptized. And I don't know, every, I don't know, so often I'll open up my pajama drawer, and I pull out, and there's my MVC T-shirts. I got a whole stack of the black ones because I've been done a lot of baptism Sundays. And I think back on those, and those are some of the best memories I have. Those are the most special memories out of every, and we've had a lot here at NBC. But, but the baptisms are the ones that, to me, really stand out. Some of you in this room, uh, when somebody says, you know what, uh, maybe I've been following Jesus for a while, um, but I'm ready to, to take this to the next level. Now, it's not like, again, Paul's going to say, no, it's not like, going on a second date with Jesus or something like that or whatever. It's way beyond that. There's, there's a, a covenant attached to it. That your status changes from I'm following Jesus in a casual way to I now have put him on like clothing, like, a, like an MVC t-shirt except unlike one that just soaks up the water or whatever. This one actually is like a robe. It's like it covers you and it has real power and it signifies not just that you go to church here it signifies that you are covered in Jesus when we cry our happy tears at graduation it's because we really wanted to see them graduate and you start thinking back on all the all the driving you did all the all the hey do your homework you know kind of conversations you had and the the soccer games you went to and the football games that you went to and all of those things, all those m- memories that, that kind of built to this crescendo that is finally here. And then you realize at that moment that they are going from one stage to another. And then when it's college, the same thing happens. And now you're like, uh-oh, now they're really by themselves and really I, 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 my role is over for the most part. I'm still a parent, but but they're now leading their own life. They're, they're you know, it's going to maybe a few weeks before they call and ask me for money again, you know, or whatever the case is. You're going to have those moments. And I think when the Bible talks about how when one sinner repents, the angels rejoice. Then if a big group of them repent together, that's got to be awesome. That's got to cause uh, a holy riot in heaven of celebration, something almost like a, uh, I don't know, the big winning field goal through, goes through the uprights at the last second kind of celebration. Or maybe it's, you know, because the tears have been reversed. Jesus cries over Jerusalem. He looks down and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known the things that make for peace. And he's going in knowing he's getting ready to die, but also recognizing they don't recognize him and what he's getting ready to do. Those are the sad tears. But then you have the happy one. The angels rejoicing. The Bible teaches us that God is both parent and principal to us spiritually. He loves us as children, and he wants desperately to see us graduate from death to life, from life under the law of sin and death to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And so we don't need to look any further than the cross to see God's love and the lengths to which he will go that we might become his children. Paul says that the law was put over us to help us graduate. Now, just a little background quickly on Galatians, okay? The issue on the table in Galatians is uh, what it takes to become a quote-unquote real Christian, all right? So the issue is you've got all these new Gentiles. They're all 
uh, they've all become Christians, but now there's a group of people who are Jewish that are saying, hey, we're really glad they're Jewish Christians. And they're saying, we're really glad that you, you have uh, become a Christian, uh, but now all you need to do is be circumcised too. And Paul's saying, no, you don't need to be circumcised. The gospel is enough. Now, what you need to know as we read the text is that all of these people are assumed to be baptized. He says it in the first line. So whatever connection it is, whatever they've done in this text, they've already been baptized, it would appear. All right, But he's saying that that covenant that you have with Christ, not the act of doing that, but what it signifies, the covenant between you and Jesus is enough. And it doesn't take anything else to be viewed as right and just in the eyes of God. So here's what he says, Galatians 3. Now keep your finger here when it's over, right? Or keep your Bible app open because we're going to read it like the short side of it and then we're going to come back and read the long version. All right, here we go. All right, Galatians 3, 24 to 26. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. This is Galatians 3, 24 to 26. In order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, here's how the King James puts it. I'm going to say in my King James voice, all right? Wherefore, <laughs> the law was our schoolmaster. <laughs> schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law trained us, he's saying, and brought us to this point of the gospel. So the Old Testament's not bad. It's what got us to understand what God was doing to reconcile the world to himself and Jesus. But now that we're here, we don't need that anymore. So it was functionally like elementary and middle and high school. It got us to where we needed to go to, but now we are with Christ, so we don't need anything else. We've reached the summit in that sense. All right? So like he's going to go on, and as he talks about it, um, Becoming a Christian, which he, again, there's no picture in the New Testament of, of an unbaptized Christian. There really isn't. Um, it's assumed in how he talks. You'll see that in a second. All right? It signifies the beginning of something, the long walk of, of, of discipleship over the course of life, and also the death of the old self. It doesn't earn, you don't earn anything by being baptized. The earning was done by Christ. It's the moment in which we accept something based on work that was already done for us. So the covenant that's forged when you get baptized um, is unique. It's different. Uh, every person in the New Testament who professed a faith in Christ and was not nailed to a cross was baptized. I'm talking about the thief on the cross, okay? And the thief on the cross, some people will talk about that as, a, as, as an event, but you need to remember, he didn't believe in the resurrection, but Romans says you have to in order to become a Christian. It's not meant to be a template for that unless you want to go be nailed to a cross as part of your conversion process. That's not a template. It's an example of something that happens in an encounter between Jesus and another person. The template and the, and the way that you see as the normative way that a person becomes a Christian is what you see in Acts 2, which is when people actually go, what must we do to be saved? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized, which is why we do it that way at New Vintage. Now, that's different. I want to be clear. That's different than saying that anybody who hasn't done that yet isn't going to heaven or something. That's different. But there's something about the biblical paradigm and doing it in that way in a very 
uh, consistent way with what's actually there in the text, by example, in action as well, as well as the actual lingo that we use, that's very important. Because when you look at the New Testament witness on baptism, it's fairly unanimous. For instance, in Romans, Paul speaks of it as a death, a burial, and a resurrection. He says, just like Christ was buried and was raised to new life, so you, when you were baptized, were buried and are now raised. In 1 Peter 3, he uses Noah and the flood as an example. And Peter says, you know, there, were, there was just this one family and they were saved from the wrath of the flood uh, and in the same way, baptism now saves you also, as, not as the washing of filth from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. In John 3, it's the picture of childbirth, uh, and there are others that could be listed. But this one is my favorite, and I think it's one that doesn't just give us instruction about what it means to be a Christian and the power that, that derives from that, but it goes forward in how we're supposed to treat one another. And how we're supposed to see the world around us. And so with that in mind, let's read Galatians 3, 26 to 4, 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Some of your translations will say, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. All right, so let's follow his, his argument here. All right. You become a Christian, as many of you are baptized into Christ and clothed yourself with Christ. Before that, you were a slave. But now you've been moved from slave to son. And if you're a son, that means you're an heir. You're, you're, you stand to inherit what the father has. So anybody that is, that is in Christ is an heir. We are co-heirs. We are brothers and sisters. And so for him, it's not, a, it's not like a vain ritual that somebody does. It's a place where somebody clothes themselves with Christ. They put on Christ. The scriptures tell us that when we clothe ourselves with Christ, we become sons of God. And that's a reason to be proud, but not in the earthly, fleshly sense of the term. Not in what we've done, but we're proud of who we are in Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we who have been baptized have become children of God. Our sins are forgiven by God. The time has come then for us to put our past lives and everything behind us. That's kind of going back to Romans, the idea of death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we do it the way we do it, through immersion. Down you go into the watery grave, up you come to new life. And then when we do that, he says your status changes. You're, you're, you're a son. 
um, or when you become a Christian and he assumes that everybody's been baptized, however you want to look at that. If you need more, here's something to think about. When Jesus walks the earth, he's baptized. And he says he has to do it to, he's going to do it to fulfill all righteousness. So I've always found it interesting people say, I don't need to, when Jesus said he needed to. That's a weird case to make, I think, that, frankly, would be enough for me. If he did it, as an example, I would, I would be interested in doing it just out of that, if nothing else was said. But the more we see it, and again, it's not, as 1 Peter 3 says, it's not about the, the, the washing away of filth from the flesh. It's not supposed to be just a vain ritual. It's not what it is. It's like getting married. There's a difference between dating somebody and marrying someone. There is. So even if you're out there and you're living together with somebody, there's a reason you're not married yet. There's a difference. Even in the eyes of the law, there's a difference. Okay? In the eyes of secular law and in the eyes of God, it's very different. So in this case, as we're, as we're looking at our baptism and our commitment to God, I wonder if the root of the issue for a lot of people who, are in, who don't want to take the step yet or feel like they aren't ready isn't so much, it isn't so much that uh, they don't see the point or whatever. It's that they don't want to commit to God that deeply. Like it's easier to almost cohabit with Jesus than it is to actually go all in. That it's a lot easier to not, not do this thing. You know, sometimes I'll have people want, want me to baptize them in private because they're terrified of being in front of people. Uh, and I have almost universally refused that. And the reason is, I don't see any examples of it, for one. And then the other is, uh, it's important for people to have witnesses to the commitments they make. When we got married, September 8th, 2000, uh, we packed that church building out. We basically said, look, you can't come to the reception if you want to, but you can come to the wedding if you want to. And we're happy to stand in front of anybody who wants to see and say, we're planning to get married and we plan to stay together for the rest of our lives. And when I marry another couple, the traditional marriage vows, uh, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the presence of God and these witnesses. It's right there in the first line. Why does that matter? Because everybody sees your commitment. That brings with it accountability. That brings with it knowledge of your intention. And so when a person gets baptized, it's totally appropriate for them to go and do that with other people watching the commitment that they're making. And if you're ready to make that commitment, that really shouldn't be a problem. You'd be happy to tell people about it. In fact, that's part of what becoming a Christian entails, your willingness to witness to him and to speak of him to others. So it's great practice. At the beach, uh, too, if you're willing to do it in front of the hippies of Encinitas, you're willing to do it anywhere. <laughs> You've got a great, pra great practice at it right there. And so we do. We go in. We take over the beach, and we, we, we do this. Now, people float by. I've had people ride a boogie board right through the baptism at some point because they're kind of out of control, and the wave just takes them there. Uh, we've had weird people just jump into the circle around us and kind of just see what's going on, and then just kind of join in like, 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 I can already see people murmuring about the guy who had the uh, skin-colored Speedo on. Everybody thought, he was, everybody thought he was naked, and he just came up in the circle 
with us and put his arms around the other people and everybody's like, you know, shocked us all. So that's one of the classic. He was like doing yoga or some stretchy stuff over on the side. And the next thing we know, we look and he's in the circle with us. He just wants to see what's going on. He's curious, right? Um, but that's the thing, right? When you do it, you're saying before others, this is what my life is about. And yeah, feel free to mock me. That's fine. I'm still with him. You know, I think a lot of people treat it like it's high school still. Remember when, like, you start dating somebody and your friends didn't approve? They make fun of you and they judge you. They'd say this and that and the other until the point that you, did, you thought about breaking up with the person. It's like pretty in pink and like Steph and Molly Ringwald. And, they, and everybody's like bullying each other and everything. And if they don't approve of this person and they don't approve of that person, then it, it gets to you, right? Well, let me tell you, if you become a Christian and you're living your life the right way, people are going to do that. Jesus said it would happen. And so what we plan on as Christians is saying, all right, if you're going to do that, then God, I'm going to depend on you for the courage to stand firm and to stand strong and to try and get the approval of my heavenly father, not whoever's out there that's going to judge me and condemn me and make fun of me because I'm a Christian. I'm with him, period. That's, that's the confession that we make as Christians. So when, you're, when, when we do these things, what he's saying is that, uh, Paul, Paul's saying is, uh, you know, you've put on Christ, and now that you've done that, that begins to change, the, obviously, the way that you, you, you act and you behave, because you were a slave, you were a slave to sin, you were a slave to the world, now you're not. Now you've been made a son of God, and if you're a son of God, then you are an heir of the promises of God. So live in that. You walk in that. You live in that. Stop acting like this. You're not a slave anymore. Not to your old way of life, not to your old lusts and desires, not to your old sins or whatever. All that stuff's been gone. Now you got, you got new clothes. You got new clothes. You've clothed yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, now you're a son. And because of that, now you're an heir. Baptism is also, he goes on to say, it changes the way that we see ourselves, our identity, and the way that we see other people. Through the power of Jesus, all of us are now one. And through the whole book of Galatians, Paul will tell those uh, who want to make the Gentile Christians be circumcised in order to be a real Christian, if you will, that they're wrong to do that. Because he's saying there's only one thing that makes a person a real Christian, and that is faith in Christ. That means that our identity is found in Jesus Christ above all else. So if I were to ask you, to describe yourself or introduce yourself to me, how would you start? Hi, my name's so-and-so. And then what would you say? How do you see yourself? Um, would you tell me what you did for a living? Um, if we weren't in person and we were over the phone, would you describe yourself? How, you know, your height, most of us would leave our weight out, but you would, uh, our height, your, you know, we'd say, uh, Male, female, you know, blah, 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 blah. How would you see? Because I'm wondering not just how you see yourself or how we see ourselves, but how we portray ourselves to other. How do we want other people to see us and understand us? Would it be height, weight, ethnicity, gender, birthplace? Um, this is one of the great battlefronts, in my opinion, for the hearts and minds of God's people. Identity. Sexual identity, racial identity gender identity, whatever. 
And what he says here, it doesn't mean, like he describes Jew and Greek, slave and free. It's not that those categories don't exist. What he's saying is that in Christ, we're all one family. And so as a result, those categories are submitted to the lordship of Christ. They, they don't matter as much. They just don't. Now, people can disagree with that all day. This goes back in the old category of, uh, I don't care. That's what the text says. So the, the decision is to say, I don't want to live according to the Bible's theology. Biblical theology says, yes, God created us in our diversity. Okay? Uh, he, he loves it. But the second I get to a point where I see my race, my tribe, my, my, my gender, my whatever, as the leading source of identity in my life, I have an idol. I don't have an identity. That when you become a Christian, that changes the way that you see yourself and the way you see other people around you. Either Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, they're all one in Christ Jesus. So, for instance, in the book of Philemon, which a lot of people haven't read, that's Paul trying to make a case to a slave owner, a Christian slave owner, that now that Onesimus, the slave, has been converted, he's like, he's your brother now. You need to take him back and not as a slave. He's your brother. Treat him like a brother. And in the culture of the time, that would have been like, you know, what? You know? And he says, no, no, no. Not, he's changed. He's your brother. He's your brother. You need to treat him as a brother. The gospel is our primary source of identity. He calls everybody sons. And he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He's telling us that our faith in Jesus transcends even our most cherished assumptions about what makes somebody a real Christian or a human. That means, in theory, according to Paul, a Christian man in Escondido has more in common with a Christian woman living in New York than he does his non-believing buddy that he plays golf with every Friday. It means that our church has more in common with a small church meeting in a home in China than we do with our non-Christian American friends. They may not speak our language or we theirs, but we are children of the heavens all the same. We are brothers and sisters. We are co-heirs of the promises of God. It means that a senior saint, we'll say a very well-ripened human, okay, a senior saint has more in common with one of our kids who's over in that children's wing than they do, in theory, their war buddy from the American Legion. That's how strong this goes. There is no stronger source of identity than Christ. There is none. It was bought with his blood, sealed with his spirit. And so when, when we became Christians, that changes the way then that we see one another. It's the way we treat one another. And we're not supposed to go around treating everybody like, oh, yeah, you know what, we're all part of the, like we like, we like the same band or something. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. We're family now. So we're supposed to treat, supposed to treat each other that way. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Who's that? As many of us who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So, the way that we treat one another then here in the body of Christ is to be shaped by the clothes we wear. 
And according to Paul, we all are wearing the same thing. And it's a lot stronger than a saggy NBC shirt. It covers you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Breathtaking. And so then, the church, as we talked about on the first day of school, we are part of those who help others graduate, right? I mean, look, when we're called in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what does he say? Go therefore in all the world. And we're supposed to preach. And we're supposed to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all the things I've commanded you. And I'm with you. Even to the end of the age, he says. At the end of Matthew. And so that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be helping others graduate. Studying with them, worrying with them, talking to them, laughing with them, paying attention to them, being aware of them, guiding them to the graduation platform. I will never forget my high school graduation. There was a kid with cerebral palsy, but he didn't, he didn't have a real extreme case. It was, it was kind of a milder case. Most of the time he was in a wheelchair, but he didn't want to wheel up there that day. He wanted to walk that day. And so he got a couple of buddies and they helped him up and he walked kind of awkwardly across the platform and he got his diploma on the other side and that place went nuts. It's awesome. And I like that metaphor for helping other people because not everybody, some people sprint to, to, the, to the scaffold there. Other people trip on their way up the stairs and need somebody to help them. Some people need to be carried, like that guy where they cut the hole in the roof and drop him down in the presence of Jesus. And that's us. We're the people that help people get there. The church. Being aware of them. And then that means for those of us that are in our immediate uh, proximity, parents and kids, means we don't spend more energy trying to get them across the high school platform than we do across, or say, into the ocean, into the baptistry, committed to Jesus. We don't spend, you know, uh, we don't waste our energy on peripheral things that don't matter as much as helping people come to know Jesus. We're not over in the ditch all the time arguing about minutiae that doesn't have anything to do with the core gospel. We have to keep evangelism toward the top of our priority list. I mean, I remember we thought, we thought my sister and I thought it was so magic. I remember us baptizing each other on vacation in the swimming pool. We'd pretend, you know, because we didn't know exactly what was, what was going on, just like the people on the beach in Encinitas don't know really what's going on. But we knew whatever was going on was important, it was special, it was magical. The people in Encinitas, they, they may think it's weird, they may think we're a weird cult or whatever, but they also know we're going to be a happy one. Everybody's smiling. They see joy. They see these people going into the water. They see the anxiety when everybody's, you know, the, the, we're taking people's testimonies and, you know, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and are you ready to make him Lord of your life? And when they say yes, everybody's like, yes, and they clap. And, of course, everybody's, you know, they're, you know, they got their, you know, what they're trying to make it look like a Coke. They got a beer and a koozie over there on the beach. And they're like, you know, what's that? And then we, we get them all going. Everybody goes to the, goes out into the water like a, like a little mini army out into the water. And then down they go. And when they come out, arms will be in the air, smiles are going. And sometimes, sometimes, happy tears. Happy tears on their face, happy tears on my face, happy tears on the 
faces of their brothers and sisters in Christ because we know now they're no longer a slave. They're a son. They're a daughter. And because of that, you're an heir. And so all of us, guess what? We get to inherit all of the promises and the riches of the kingdom of God together. And what an amazing thing that is. So let me ask you, what's the holdup, man? Like if you haven't done, what, what is it? I hope that whatever that is, you'll talk to somebody and it may be, you know what? I actually was thinking about getting baptized and now that I know I have to do it in public and in the ocean, I'm out. Okay, We'll work with you on that as long as we can. But I'm going to try to get you there. Stand up in front of your peers and say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. Try me. <laughs> and to feel the Spirit of God empowering you. It's such a powerful moment for people to be able to go and get started in a lifetime of witnessing. To do it right there. It's like when you're a parent, you're teaching a kid to ride a bike. And you don't just set them on the bike and let them go. It falls over. The way you get them to ride is you run with them for a while. And then you kind of let them go. And then sometimes you'll run alongside the bike just in case they start to, to fall over. That's kind of what this is. It's an opportunity for you to, to get going and to start your walk in that way, in a new way. So, Christians, let me ask you. Are you willing to help? You want to help people. And maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you just haven't taken this step. Then I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, it may be that you were baptized at some point in your life, and, but you've, the covenant that you made with God has gotten very rusty, even forgotten. It's, it's like a, a dentist office magazine over in the, in the corner. Let me encourage you today. Renew that today. We're getting ready to gather around the Lord's table as a family, brothers, sisters. The ushers have the elements in the bags. If you got them on the, uh, when you came in, that's great. If you didn't, they've got little baskets. Put your hand in the air. We do this every week, and today we're going to do this just as our brothers and sisters in all the parts of the world have done today. They've already done it on the East Coast and in the Caribbean, in the U.K., all around the world. Today, the body of Christ gathers together, and they do this very simple thing. They remember Jesus with bread and cup, body and blood. And they remember what he did to make this possible. And so it's him that we put on as Christians. Today we do this as a family meal, and we do this together saying that we are one another's sisters and brothers. And we do it saying that we will honor the Lord Jesus above everyone else. And we do it committed to serving one another in the world in which we live. So with that in mind, let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray as we take the bread and the cup together this morning. Father, for those who have never taken that step of putting on Christ in baptism, that you would stir their heart, that you would give them the courage, that you would help them find somebody who can help guide, help guide them through that process. Father, I'm so grateful for 
the covenant that we have with you in Jesus. It's stronger than any steel, lasts longer than anything that this earth can offer, is more sure than the most secure item here on earth, and was offered to us, Father, because of your grace. And we see it most clearly in the person and the work of Christ. And so today, Father, as we take the bread and the cup, may we remember how freely this was given to us and how, Father, we freely give the gospel away to others who are willing to accept it and willing to say that Jesus is Lord and willing to make him Lord of their life. We pray this now, Father, in the name of Christ.